following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Good morning, everyone. My name is Melody. I am a member of the leadership team. And fun fact about me, well, it's not that fun. depends on your definition of fun. But a fun fact about me is that my favorite verse is Jesus wept. And I used to feel insecure about that because I thought maybe I was just choosing that one because it's a lot easier to memorize than a lot of other verses. But for decades, that's been my favorite verse. And I actually had an interview once at a university. It was a Christian university and it was a small university. So the president of the university did one of my interview sessions and she asked me, what's your favorite verse? And I thought, I feel like this is a test to see if I can actually work at a Christian college. But also, I also felt like that might cue that you don't really know what you're doing either, that all you could think to ask someone was, what's your favorite verse? Like, So it's not a great way to start a sermon by saying I lied, but I definitely lied because I felt like if I said Jesus wept, not getting hired. So I, I said some some psalms and, you know, gave a poetic answer. Um, but, and I did get the job offer, by the way, which I'm very glad I turned down because now I am here with you all living in Rochester. Um, so that is a segue into what we're talking about today. So first, I just want to describe um, my approach to our conversation today. I'm combining two series. So we've been doing a series on Wholehearted Faith, which is a book that Rachel Held Evans wrote, um, along with Jeff Chu, who finished the book after she died. And we are also doing a um, series sort of sporadically. Scott uses a fancier word, but I'm blanking on the word. So I'm just going to say sporadically. What's the word? Non-consecutively or something. Um, called What is Saving My Faith Right Now? So Dan gave a great sermon a few weeks ago. If you haven't listened to that, I highly recommend listening to the podcast. So I'm going to try to combine both things. What is saving my faith right now? And wholehearted faith. And so the chapter from the book that we are talking about today is chapter 11. The title is Wilderness. So I'm going to be focusing on how grieving in the wilderness and the ways that I'm thinking about that is saving my faith right now. So a couple caveats, like any good academic, I have a few caveats to start. Um, I want to acknowledge that grief is a tender topic. So I encourage you to take care of yourself well. I also want to tell you that I'm not going to give any specific examples of grief. So you don't have to be bracing yourself that I'm going to talk about something um, that is a specific thing that you may or may not have experienced. I'm going to talk about this broadly Um, I also want to say this is for sure not a replacement for grief counseling or therapy. It is not a solution for trauma and deep pain. It is instead my story of how the ways that I'm thinking about grieving and grieving specifically in the wilderness is saving my faith. One more caveat. This is not doctrine of suffering stuff. That is way above my pay grade. My pay grade is actually zero. So lots of things are above my pay grade. Um, But we're just not even going to touch that stuff. Of course, that's an important conversation, but for another day. So my hope is that if grief feels near to you right now, 
or if grief has been near to you in a recent season, my hope is that this will resonate. So I encourage you to take what's resonant and leave what isn't. I really enjoyed last week's sermon and was furiously scribbling notes about how these two connect. So I just want to say a little bit before I get into today about the connection to last week. The chapter that we read for last week from Wholehearted Faith is The Steady Work of Living Water. And Scott talked about the freedom to touch and taste and feel and smell and hear scripture. We did an Ignatian reading of the passage We were encouraged to think about Jesus's baptism and the snow melting into the river and the rhododendrons blossoming on the side of the bank, the catfish and the turtles in the water. And I'm going to talk about this freedom, this curiosity, this um, engagement with our senses of touching and tasting and feeling and smelling in our lived experience of God, specifically in the wilderness and specifically in seasons of grief. So I have a slide that provides a list of some wise teachers that is not on the screen. I'm guessing from Scott's reaction of this, that it was not a slide, which is fine. No, it's fine. So I will, I will on the Artisan Communal Square Facebook page, I will post this list. And if you're not on that, um, you can email me at melody at artisanchurch.com and I'll email it to you. It's a list of people who I've learned about grief and about the wilderness and about embodiment from. And so I just want to acknowledge that there are many wise teachers that I've learned from. And so what I'm sharing today is how I've learned from them and how I've incorporated um, their wisdom into my story. So all of that said, what is my main point? I'm going to do a spoiler alert and just say the main point now. And the main point is that What is saving my faith right now is the invitation of believing that God draws near to the brokenhearted. Full stop. No silver lining, no rose-colored glasses, no making it all okay, no explanation. Jesus wept, period. Now, of course, we know there's more to this story. Jesus didn't just weep. There's more to the story. But I think the reason that verse felt so powerful to me is because it was so present that Jesus wept. Regardless of what came before, regardless of what came after, and of course those are important things to do when we study scripture to look at context, but that little verse matters. Jesus wept. And so I'm believing that God draws near to the brokenhearted. Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord draws near to the brokenhearted. And I love how the message translates this. The message words it, if your heart is broken, you'll find God right there. If your heart is broken, you'll find God right there. So I want us to just sit in that that God is right there, that Jesus wept. And of course there's more. We can hold the both ends, but for now I'm going to talk about the full stop. No silver lining. And really, what is saving my faith right now? 
is not just believing that God is near to the brokenhearted, but feeling this in my body. Feeling God draw near to me in my brokenheartedness. Feeling God right there. In my grief, in my pain, in my loss, in my unmet hopes and expectations, in my disappointments, in my sorrow, feeling God draw near. So how does this connect to wilderness? I want to talk a little bit about how Rachel and also Jeff describe the wilderness. And on page 127, they write, the path from unquestioning certainty to wholehearted vulnerability looks a lot less like a wide, paved, flat boulevard than a winding, sometimes barely discernible track through steep hills and debris-strewn valleys. In other words, it looks a lot like a journey through the wilderness. So Rachel describes wilderness as an alternative to unquestioning certainty. And as I reflected on this, I thought about the fact that grief is one of the areas that I've experienced the most pressure to have unquestioning certainty. There's lots of words for this. I'm going to use the phrase toxic positivity, which is from um, lots of researchers talk about this, but Kate Bowler, who is one of the people I can um, point to as a wise teacher on this, talks about toxic, toxic positivity, which is this sort of putting a positive spin on things in ways that is actually very unhealthy and unhelpful. And toxic positivity is everywhere in sort of many dominant cultural conversations, but it's also really heightened, I would say, in Christian discourse. I thought about mentioning a long list of them, and I decided not to because I know that these can be painful. So I'm not going to mention very many specific ones, but I'm guessing you can think of some. You can think of some that you've heard, some that have been said to you, maybe some that you've said. I for sure have as recently as yesterday, even when I was preparing for this, I found myself saying something to someone that uh, I wished I hadn't. So this is not to um, point fingers or blame, but to unpack how do these messages feel for us. So while I won't list many, or uh, Rachel talks about one earlier in the book, in an earlier chapter, she talks about her professor who dismissively said to her, God's ways are higher than our ways. And I think this phrase is often used in response to moments of grief and loss. It's saying there's a plan, there's a reason, you just don't understand it. And I think the way that feels, at least for me, maybe for you too, what I hear is don't feel what you're feeling, move on. Don't trust how you're feeling. Don't sit with how your body is feeling in this moment. Don't sit with how your body is showing up in this season. In fact, get out of your body, let go and let God. And I think this disembodies us. 
For me, the sharp edges of grief have been made sharper by the unquestioning certainty things that people have said to me. And not just to me, things I hear people say to others, things I hear in the public conversation, the sharp edges of grief have been made sharper by the unquestioning certainty things that people have said. They've been sharper by this sort of command to get out of my body, give it to someone who knows more and just keep going. And I think the thing is that we feel brokenheartedness, grief, sorrow, disappointment, loss. I think we feel it in our bones. We feel it in our bodies. We feel it in our blood and our guts. And so when God is only accessible, only present in ways that people in power tell us that God is, we often end up experiencing that as distance. Because often people in power are trying to maintain control, perhaps manipulate us. And in telling us we're not capable of feeling this and sitting with this, we end up getting kind of pushed to keep working, keep producing, keep, keep going, keep doing all the things you're doing and don't, don't pause, don't sit with, don't grieve with. And it doesn't, it doesn't track with us. It doesn't feel good in our bodies. It doesn't feel right. We know it doesn't feel right in our bones. This toxic positivity, the platitudes, they don't end up feeling like God's presence to us because our bodies are telling us something different. Our bodies are saying, this matters. This does matter. Your grief, your loss, your pain, it matters. Your body knows that. And we feel distant when what we hear is this doesn't matter. That's what I realized I feel when someone says this sort of platitude. What I hear is this actually doesn't really matter. Let someone who knows more deal with it and just pretend it didn't happen, move on. And I know I'm, I'm making sort of glittering, glittering generalizations, but that's how it feels to me. It feels like distance from God. It doesn't feel like God draws near to the brokenhearted. When the God who is presented to us by people in power is controlling all certain cold and a know-it-all. And we often talk about the language of a nice, neat bow, tying something up in a nice, neat bow. And I appreciate that Scott will often say, I don't have a nice, neat bow to end this sermon. So I've been thinking about this phrase, a nice, neat bow. And in preparing for today, I realized the nice, neat bow feels like a corset to me. This unquestioning certainty, the opposite of wilderness. This unquestioned certainty often feels like tying up messy, hard, devastating, confusing, disappointing moments of being human with this nice, neat bow. And that bow is often patriarchal, high control, manipulative, hungry for profit and power. And it feels like a corset. For a long time, I've intellectually, logically, rationally critiqued those nice, neat bows, the platitudes, 
the toxic positivity. But what is saving my faith right now is paying attention to how those bows feel in my body. Those bows are constricting corsets for me. They don't allow me to breathe deeply, to feel in my breath, to feel in my belly, to expand and take up space as I breathe and cry and grieve, to breathe in the universal human experience of grief and loss and tears and breath. In fact, those corsets don't even allow me to acknowledge the depth of pain and loss. So if wilderness is the alternative to unquestioning certainty, what is grieving in the wilderness? What is grieving in the wilderness in a way that isn't the nice, neat bow corset? And I'm not critiquing you for wear a corset, by the way. This is just me talking about how this feels for me. Uh, so please don't hear me say that. You do you. Um, but don't make me wear one, I guess. <laughs> so if wilderness is the alternative to unquestioning certainty, what is grieving in the wilderness? I think grief in the wilderness looks like bearing witness to suffering. We bear witness to our suffering. God bears witness to our suffering. Love bears witness to our suffering. Your heartbreak matters to God. Your heartbreak matters to love. Your heartbreak from religion and church and Christians, your heartbreak from family and friends and community, your heartbreak from health challenges, from pain, your heartbreak from financial stress and uncertainty, your heartbreak from political and social discourse, political and social oppression, your heartbreak from dreams that went unmet, from hopes that were dashed. It matters. It all matters. I think grief in the wilderness looks like viewing grief as community care. So Romans 12, 15 urges us to mourn with those who mourn. And I think that feeling God near to us in our heartbreak helps us draw near to communities who are grieving, helps us draw near to people who are grieving. I think this freedom from certainty, freedom from unquestioning certainty gives us freedom to sit with others in their pain, to sit with others in their grief, to sit with others in their sorrow, because we don't need to have all the answers. We don't need to have the nice, neat bows to make it all okay. We don't need to say all the right things, and we don't have to show up perfectly because we for sure will not. It takes the pressure off. It gives room for our humanity. And in many ways, I think that the work of justice is the work of uh, tending to communal grief well. And I want to emphasize, I'm not the one coming up with this idea. I'll um, happily share the wise teachers who say this, that the work of justice is the work of tending to communal grief well. That's a whole other sermon. I think grief in the wilderness also looks like turning the prism. 
So language we've used at Art of Din um, that draws from language that other faith communities use is thinking of scripture as a multifaceted jewel that you turn it and it catches the light in different ways. Multifaceted is a hard thing for me to say, so I'm just going to use the word prism. Okay, so I said that word twice, and I know if I say it a third time, I'm not going to say it right. So I'm going to use the term prism. So I think grief in the wilderness looks like turning the prism on scripture and in other ways. So we heard the verse from Matthew 5, 4 earlier. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I find that verse really meaningful. And also, sometimes the they shall be comforted feels like a nice, neat bow. So I wonder if we turn the prism. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed is a whole other situation, and I'm not going to turn the prism on that right now, because that's another, yet another sermon. Um, but let's, so let's just leave that one and all the hashtag blessed and all the layers connected to that word are just going to hold that and move on. They shall be comforted. That word that is translated as comforted can also be translated as to be called near. This does not fix or solve, make tidy or comfortable, or honestly, even sometimes bring comfort in the sense that we often think of the word comfort, but it does feel like presence and presence matters. It does mean that I am not alone. It means that you are not alone. God is there. Love is there. And in the wilderness, I'm expanding where and how I feel love near. Where and how I feel God near. What's been helpful for me to experience grief in a wilderness way, to expand where and how I feel love near. I'll say a few things. I don't have it all figured out. This is not a prescription, but here's some things that have been helpful for me. First, as we've described earlier, embracing this freedom to resist certainty and to sit with it, to sit with the truth that this is hard, that this is brutal, that this feels impossible sometimes. I think when we are honest with our grief, we can be gentle with ourselves. The second is this turning the prism, and I'm going to touch briefly on, for me, what's been helpful is turning the prism on names for God. If God is love, and if God is near, How do I turn the prism to catch that light? How do I feel God as love, as present? And I think sometimes when our names for God connect with our pain and our grief, it does not feel like presence. It feels like distance. And so one of the things that's been helpful for me is I will sometimes sing different words than are up on the screen. I play with, I get curious about different pronouns, different names for God. How do those feel for me? What is making me feel shut down? What is making me feel love? So for you, there might be different than the ones for me. Maybe for you, 
our father or healer or savior or king or Lord. Maybe those feel hard. Maybe others feel hard. We get to turn the prism and we are not saying that God is not this and instead God is this. God is all of those. It's not either or. So that ties into the next one that's been helpful for me is living into the both and, particularly around seasons of grief, that we can feel everything at once, grief and hope, mourning and joy, love and sorrow. I can believe and feel that God is with me in my heartbreak, and that can also just not feel like enough. I can want things to be so very different than they are, and I can hold and have people hold with me how they actually are. I can feel the ache of grief and loss and disappointments and heartbreak, and I can feel the presence of love. And the last thing that's been helpful for me to grieve in the wilderness is letting myself believe and feel that God is indeed in all things. As Rachel talks about in an earlier chapter, God is in all things, not just in the places and the things that people in power told us God was in. God is in me, in you. God is sitting with me in my pain. God is sitting when we sit in others' pain. God is in the wilderness, in the wind, in the trees, in the crunching snow, in the blowing leaves. Love is there. Presence is there. Love shows up when the the wind caresses your cheek. Love shows up when you are walking by the lake. Love shows up when you breathe deeply the cold spring air. When you light a candle when you taste the salt of your tears, when you feel well-nourished after a good meal, when the cloudy, misty spring envelops you, God is there. Love is there. So as Rachel says um, in this chapter, chapter 11, the wilderness is an invitation to maybe. She writes, Maybe one of the lessons is that the wilderness is a place where we can't rely on the familiar, which can seem like a hardship, but might also be an invitation. An invitation into the reality of our existence, an invitation to the truth of our vulnerability. So what are some ways that you can embrace maybe? I've just talked about wilderness in grief, but I wonder if we can think about wilderness and other aspects of our lives. And I'm going to close by having us um, breathe together a little bit, and then I'm going to read a prayer. One of the wise teachers I've learned a lot about this from is Cole Arthur Riley, who um, has a book and an amazing social media account called Black Liturgies. And she does breath prayers. Sarah Bessie is also a great resource for breath prayers. So I'm going to have us do a breath prayer together. And then I'll end with um, a prayer from Cole Arthur Riley. So this is Lent. Lent is a season where we make space for grief, where we honor wilderness. And if we think of wilderness as an invitation, I invite you to breathe and pray with me.
So we'll just do two breath prayers. We'll inhale and we can say silently, lament is sacred. And we can exhale and say, I am free to heal. And I will say those out loud, but you can say them silently. So we'll inhale and exhale together. Inhale, lament is sacred. Exhale, I am free to heal. The next, on the inhale, I can honor my sadness. Exhale, without being consumed by it. Inhale, I can honor my sadness. Exhale, without being consumed by it. That felt weird for you. It's okay. One of the things that's been helpful for me in the wilderness is to try new forms of prayer. And breath prayer has been really helpful for me. So again, I'm happy to share some resources for um, amazing teachers who teach us how to do this well and to be curious and to try turning the prism on what, what prayer looks like, what um, it feels like to feel God near, to feel love near. So I will close us with a prayer from Cole Arthur Riley. God who knows sorrow, thank you for being a God who is moved to tears for in doing, you remind us that we can believe healing is coming and still make space to grieve what is. Remind us that hope and lament are not mutually exclusive. We confess that we are at times threatened by sadness in one another. We rush to resolve it. Grant us companions capable of remaining with us in our sadness. Not so they can speak platitudes over us or try to drag our souls towards happiness, but so they can hold space for our pain, reminding us that our stories are not a burden. Help us to hold our tears as sacred, never being too quick to wipe them away or hold them prisoner, knowing that our freedom is entwined with theirs. Our spirit aches, but not alone. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.